The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So I've kind of got laid out about six sermons, but I'm not sure if it's going to become eight. And I know you've never heard that before. So um, I'm trying to maintain it as six, but tonight will be a test. And uh, But we'll find out for sure uh, whether we go from six to seven or six to eight or just stay at six. And tonight will be a little bit of an indicator. But I, I don't want to just get through this. I want this to get through to us because I think that there is a significant... Um, battle that is ahead. Well, that's not ahead. It's here at Christ Church, the professing church. And it's a battle that needs to be met biblically in the power of the Spirit to the honor of Christ with confidence in Christ, having been conformed to the mind of Christ and renewed in our minds for Christ and filled with His Spirit. Now, having said that, I thought uh, there's kind of a number of key texts I want to work you through as we go through this series. What's the series? Well, first of all, this is one of those that the session asked me to give some thoughts on this matter of progressive Christianity and our session meetings when we get together and I have the opportunity to do our fresh bread studies uh, and devotionals at our session meetings and then we go into extended prayer and then we go to business matters or shepherding matters. Um, but they said, you know, Pastor, we believe this is helpful and we would like for you to develop it uh, for our congregation, especially not only in light of what is happening as we observe it, but because of how this has come home to look for roost and rest, even within our own beloved denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. So we would like for you to do that, knowing that there are some crucial issues that are coming up before our General Assembly in this coming General Assembly uh, in June, and then likely some even more crucial or as crucial uh, issues that will be coming up throughout the year and to the next General Assembly, which, by the way, we will be hosting here in Birmingham uh, next year. Uh, this year, though, we will be in St. Louis, and we have a number of overtures and issues that are uh, that come to us under the rubric, or at least I would put it under the rubric, of progressive Christianity. Now, if I can take just a minute with you, what are some of these issues? Well, some of these issues is the fact that a number of pastors in our churches are not looking primarily to the Word of God. Now, they would say that they are, but functionally they're not, in that they have almost canonized certain books that have come out of 
um, that have come out of cultural, social, political tools. Now, those cultural, social, political tools usually come out of what uh, was developed at a radical school to promote international communism. I don't want to get into the details on this, but communism in the 1900s did not have the success it thought it should have had. Had some local successes and large nations turning, but it didn't move internationally as they thought it should. So they began to develop tools to advance it out of a school in Frankfurt, and that is became the Frankfurt Critical Theory tools. Some of them are called critical theory, and they have subsets, critical race theory, critical law theory, uh, critical, um, and there's plain critical theory. And, and we are going to get there in a couple of weeks so that I can try to give you some handles on those. But one of my concerns right now is there are books that are being written by professing evangelicals that basically are not drawn from the Scripture. They use the Scripture and the vocabulary of our Christian theology. But they don't use the same meanings. Here's the way I say it, is that they use in their writings, they use the evangelical and reformed theological glossary and vocabulary, but not our dictionary. The words don't mean the same. And so... um, And so they become extremely crucial for us to know what's happening and what's being said. Because if God's people are not equipped, they hear the words they've heard all their life. But what they don't realize, those words don't mean the same from that pulpit that they meant from the pulpit that you grew up in. And uh, and so how can you recognize that? Secondly, there is the sexual revolution, the LGBTQA plus agenda and um and so um it is uh it's not something the church has gone looking for it's gone looking for the church uh, because the church with its biblical view of sexual ethics uh has a certain resting place confessionally what is what is man? What is male and female? What uh, the sanctity of gender, the sanctity of sexuality within marriage, the sanctity of marriage, one man, one woman, one life, the sanctity of sexuality in the context of marriage, and the sanctity of family. And then, um, and then the movement of the sexual revolution, and I use the word revolution adv- not advisedly, but pointedly. I use it because a revolution is a cultural, social, political, those revolutions have one objective, and that objective is everyone will be required to celebrate what they once condemned and condemn what they want to celebrate. We're not talking about room at the table for lifestyles that were used to be set aside. We're talking about everyone has to celebrate what they once condemned and, and must condemn what they once celebrated. And so various things have come into the church that, well, how do we minister to people who have, um, these, uh, who have the addictions of sexual sins such as homosexuality? How do you do that? It's clear God can save people from their sins. But how does that happen? Well, there was a movement that was begun. It was called Revoice. And in that movement that was called Revoice, there were, it says there are two approaches. And now I'm, I'm right now, again, we're coming back here, but I want to just give you just a feel for it. Uh, one, uh, one approach was called Side A. 
The other approach was called side B. Now, I guess that's drawn from my high school days when a, when a 45 record came out. You had side A, which was preferred, and side B, which sometimes outsold side A. But uh, I don't know whether that's where it came from or not. But that's where it came. That's the language that is used. Now, what is side A? Side A says the homosexual desires, the homosexual practices, the homosexual uh, engagement is that which is that which comes from who I am and I was born that way. It is, um, it is genetically determined. And therefore the church needs to realize, uh, you believe God made everything. If God made us this way, then you've got to get over your hangups on your phobias, your homophobias, and you've got to learn to accept it because we're just doing, we didn't choose this. This was, this was inflicted upon us by way of genetic, um, by way of, of genetic uh, approbation. Well, of course, I don't have time to go there, but I will take the time just simply to say this. With a Christian world in life view, I set that aside for two reasons. Number one, general revelation. There is no genetic connection. There is no DNA connection. And all the tests that have attempted to prove it have proved fruitless. But number two, I go to Romans chapter one, and God describes the homosexual desires and relationship as unnatural. Well, that means it can't be side A because side A says I was born that way. It's natural. So, um, but then there's side B and side B says, no, we didn't choose it either. We have that orientation, not because of creation or that we were made that way. Um, and, um, but, uh, but, but we have that because, uh, because of the sin nature we inherited when we were born. Our sin nature is designed that way. And so we have a sin nature of sexual orientation, same-sex orientation. Well, again, um, um, and, and that's why they would then come out and say, therefore, part of my identity is I am a, quote, gay Christian. I am a gay Christian or I am a same-sex attracted or same-sex oriented Christian. Well, you know, we have a position paper and we fully aware in our position paper, we make abundantly clear when people come searching or we go seeking them and they have this addictive sin in their life. We don't make them get the vocabulary right up front. That's not, no, if, if they come and say, well, I think I'm a gay, but I want to be a gay Christian. Well, let's start right there. What does it mean to be a Christian? And we'll get to the nomenclature. But when the church leadership, when a denominational leadership adopts that nomenclature, adopts those terms, there is no way that they can be faithful to the gospel because those terms are not consistent with the gospel. Harry, why would you say that? Well, first of all, the gospel tells me I have a sin nature, but the gospel's very clear. I don't get a designer sin nature. It's not like God said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to give this guy a pornographic sin nature. And then I'm going to give this person a thieving sin nature. I'm going to give this one a homicidal sin nature. I'm going to give this one a homosexual sin nature. No, no, the Bible's clear. We have a sin nature. We're in rebellion against God. But can I just jump forward when you get saved? What do you get? You get a new record, right? Say amen. Just act like you're a Christian. Okay. Amen. You get a new heart, right? 
You get a new nature, right? Amen. You got, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? New creation. The old has passed away. Behold the God. Now you still got an old man, but you got a new heart. You got a new record. You got a new nature. Well, then what do you do with that? Because of that new record, that new heart and that new nature, what do you do? You work out your salvation as a statement of worship with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Well, guess what you do with your sin nature when you're born? When you're born again, you get a new nature in Christ with a new record and a new heart so that you can work out your new life. Well, guess what? When you're born in this world, you got a sin nature. And it didn't come with a designer label on it. You then work it out in response to your heart and to this world and how you're dealing with this world instead of dealing with everything by surrendering to Christ. Therefore, we design the life of rebellion out of our sin nature, not we are victimized by it. As for being named by sin, folks, I had some serious addictive sins. I try to forget them. And when they want to crop back up out of the weed patch, I don't try to manage them and cut them back. I want to pull them out by the roots. I want to kill it. And I never want that to be my identity. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Do not let sexual immorality, effeminate, homosexual, murder, Gluttony, do not let those even be named among you. So if we are attempting to kill sin, that's what I tell people. I want Briarwood to be a safe church for sinners, but the unsafest place in the world for sin. We want to see sinners loved and redeemed and sin killed. Because if you don't kill sin... It will kill you, your testimony, your life, your marriage. So you, we want to kill it. That's why he says, don't let it be named. Now, if God tells us that we are not to have sin named that is allowed to exist without attacking it to kill it in our midst, why would we take something that's not to be named and name ourselves with it? I'm a gay Christian. I'm a fornicating Christian. I'm a pornographic Christian. Well, Harry, all I can tell you is I know that, you know, when you go and you deal with addictive sins, you're supposed to stand up and say, hi, I'm Harry Reader. I'm, well, I can't say that. That'll get edited out and I'll be in all kind of trouble. But, um, so, uh, hi, I'm, I'm Joe Smith and I'm an alcoholic. Well, as, I understand what people are doing. But folks, that's the therapeutic world. That is not the redemptive world. The redemptive world, hi, I was a sinner under the dominion of sin. I am now a sinner saved by grace under the dominion of grace. And now my life is Christ. And whatever sin I got left, I'm on the war path. We're going to kill it. We're going to destroy it. How do we get rid of it? We don't manage it. We mortify it. 
We don't just seek to work on it. Can I, can I, here's where I'm getting in trouble. This was not built into the sermon. So this is an extra, I'm just giving it to you. All right. Harry, what do you do with deeply entangling, besetting sins that you want to get rid of, but they're hanging on? They're hanging on in your life. You got a new record. You got a new heart. You got a new life. And guess what happens when you get converted? Some of your addictive sins, God just takes them right out. But some of them, you fight sometimes the rest of your life. They keep cropping back up. And I believe the key to it is discipleship and the completely immersing of yourself in the means of grace. Even as a saved person, I have some broken areas in my life. I haven't been perfected yet. Well, if I've got a, and I'm a vessel for the Lord and I pray for his grace, but now watch, if a vessel is broken, if a vessel is broken, how can you fill it up to overflowing? It's broken. It leaks. How can you fill it up? There's only one way. The only way you can fill up a broken vessel, a vessel with holes in it, is to submerge it. Dare I say, this will make all the Baptists happy. You have to immerse it. Then it fills up. And it overflows. Well, that's what you need to do when you're killing sin. That's deeply embedded. You don't take little forays and ambush attacks on it. You bring an all-out assault and submerge yourself in word, prayer, fellowship, preaching, worship. You submerge yourself into so that, and when you do that, I want to give you two pictures. In my backyard, I don't have many trees, praise the Lord. I don't even have a big backyard. Doubly, I praise the Lord. But I tell you, I do have two trees, and one tree, when the fall comes and the sap goes down, I'm referring to what's in the tree, not me, when the sap goes down, as the sap goes down, those leaves begin to fall off and start making room when the spring and the sap comes up. But I got another tree, it's right beside the house, and when the fall comes, the leaves don't fall. They just stay there. They stay there the whole winter until the spring. And when the spring comes, they didn't fall off to make room for the new in the fall. When the spring comes, the sap brings up and pushes them out to make room. And that's discipleship. Some of the sins in our life, we've got to fill up and push them out. Some of them, we need to cut off the supply, cut the sap off, that they fall away, that they're taken away. So how do you put off the old man, including besetting sins? 
Well, you get into the gospel blessings of the means of grace. God's gospel is powerful. God's word is powerful. God's spirit is powerful. Prayer is powerful. Preaching is prayer. And so you get into it and you get immersed. And the one thing you do is you flee temptation and you cut off the supply to the sin. And the other thing you do is you start filling up with that which will push out sin in your life as well. You don't identify with it. And you don't manage it. You kill it. And you don't adopt a view of the gospel that you can't kill it. Well, that's just what you are. I just have got to manage it. I just can't act it out. And then side B comes up with this notion. That the orientation and desire is not sin unless I act it out. But that stands in conflict with Galatians and Ephesians and James, which tell us sin comes when the inward desires match the outward temptation and they unite and sin is what they give birth to. In the Christian life, we flee the temptation And we mortify the heart every single day. Again, this, why am I bringing this up to you? Because I'm hoping you see we're not talking about issues of technique in the church. We're talking about issues of theology. These are issues of the first order. Side B Christianity says you can come to Christ and get the blessings of justification and adoption. But you don't get the power of regeneration and sanctification. But we say, no, the gospel not only has the blessings of changing your status, it also has the blessings of changing your heart and your life. Not perfectly, not, for, not, um, not evenly, but it will do its work. Yes, on this side of eternity, you can get some victories. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 and 10, do you not know that no effeminate, no homosexual, no murder, no glutton, and he lists off nine sins, shall, enter the, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then this next phrase, and such were some of you, but you've been justified. There's a declarative blessing. You've been washed with regeneration. There is the transformation blessing. Such were some of you, but sin no longer has dominion over you. So we're dealing with social and political instruments that have been canonized into the libraries of leaders in our church and evangelical churches. And that's the go-to to deal with many of the social and political and cultural issues of the day. Not the gospel and not hope of the gospel, but these instruments that aren't designed for gospel solutions. They're actually anti-Christian. They're actually anti-gospel. They don't call for repentance. They call for penance. They don't call for repentance unto forgiveness. They call for penance. And so that the oppressed. The so-called oppressors. Now get oppressed. 
In other words, they don't call for the end of issues like racism. They call for the exchange of creating new racists who were there to oppress the old racists. Until those get their oppression dealt with by creating new oppressors. So here it has no hope. It has no forgiveness. It has no heart. In other words, these are things that are used in progressive Christianity that have no solution in mind. The only thing they have in mind is the promotion of those who preach them and teach them. Not the emancipation of those who are being used to further them. So how do we deal with these issues and how should we deal with them? This, so here's what I don't think we can do. We can't run around and play whack-a-mole apologetics. And we go over here and we're going to slap down critical race theory. And we go over here and we're going to slap down critical theory. And then we're going to slap down critical law theory. And then we're going to slap down, uh, um, we're going to slap down, um, um, racism or social ju- justice and, and the social gospel. And we're going to slap that one down. Now, yeah, I'm, all of those things need to be answered. And I'm going to try to give you some handles on all these issues in this series. But that's not, you need to understand that all of those are flowing out of of an invasion of a false theology that is not a subset of Christianity. It is ultimately anti-Christianity, and it's called progressive Christianity. So I'm going to ask you to look with me in Acts chapter 1, and let's take a look in our series. This is historic biblical Christianity in contrast and progressive Christianity. Contemporary Progressive Christianity. Can I give you that title again for this series? Historic Biblical Christianity and Contemporary Progressive Christianity. May I tell you the most important word in that title? And. Because I do not believe the two are related. They're in opposition. In other words, I do not believe that contemporary progressive Christianity is ultimately a subset or an iteration of Christianity or it's a, it's a avenue of Christianity for certain people who have certain personality types. I believe it is anti-Christian And it eventually will manifest itself as an adversary with the the techniques and with the therapies and with the message that it offers. Now, why do I believe that? Well, I believe that for a couple of reasons. Look with me in Acts chapter 1. Let's look at biblical, at the roots of biblical Christianity. In the book of Acts, you've got... The gospel flowing out of obedience to the Great Commission. Here, Jesus takes his disciples before he ascended. We're on Ascension Sunday today. Before he ascended, he took his disciples and he said, 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, or behold, I will be with you every day, all the days to the end of the age. That's his great commission that's coupled with the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's what he gave them. Then he went up on the Mount of Olives to ascend. What were his last words to them before he ascended, whom he had given the great commission and the great commandment? And when he gives it to them, what happens? Take your Bibles and look with me in Acts chapter 1 at verse 4. And while staying with them, he, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, that's the Holy Spirit, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So let's stop there. Foundational truths. The Holy Spirit did not start working after the ascension of Jesus. Well, what does it mean that he's sending the promise of the Father? That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit was not working in the Old Testament. Did people get saved by grace in the Old Testament? Well, they had to have the work of the Spirit to get saved. Here's what's different. Is now the Holy Spirit who is sent is called the Spirit of Christ. In other words, the same spirit that was with Jesus from the womb and the virgin birth to the tomb, out of the tomb, and then received him into glory from heaven, he now sends his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who had been with him in his accomplishment of his work of redemption, and he sends the Holy Spirit upon his people. And so you get the Holy Spirit, not necessarily from the womb to, to the tomb. Jesus had the Holy Spirit from the womb at his ordination when he was baptized, in the wilderness when he was teaching. Romans and Hebrews says the Holy Spirit took him to the cross. The Holy Spirit brought him out of the tomb. And the Holy Spirit was with him 40 days and then received him into the Shekinah glory of the host in the clouds. When he rose from, from uh, the mount, when he ascended from the Mount of Olives and was taken up, taken up. Who took him up? The Holy Spirit takes him up. The one who brought him down to that womb now takes him up. And then at the enthronement, at the right time, he is going to pour forth. He is going to baptize his people with the same spirit who was with him. The spirit of God, the spirit of Christ will come upon you from the new birth all the way to you are brought to glory. And that same spirit is going to be with you and you are baptized. The Bible does not have a baptism. Sorry. I know it's taught, but it's not true. The Bible doesn't teach a baptism of the Spirit. The Bible teaches a baptism of Jesus with the Spirit. The Spirit is not the baptizer. 
Jesus is the baptizer. And he baptizes his people in, with, and by the Holy Spirit. Why does he baptize us with the Holy Spirit? Look back at the text. He, he, he then says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When will that be? Ten days later, Pentecost. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. See, he is baptized with the Holy Spirit. He has come upon you. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He gives you power. Why does he give you power? So that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. He was taken up and a cloud. You can almost see the imagery of the tabernacle and the temple, can't you? The Shekinah glory, the cloud of the Lord, the outshining of the Holy Spirit. A cloud took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In fact, Zechariah says it come back to the very same place, the Mount of Olives. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? When Jesus says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, what is their next question? Okay, when are you going to give the kingdom, uh, when are you going to restore See, they've already understood something's happened. The prophets have already told us that the father divorced the covenant nation of Israel. He issued a writ of divorce. So now he asked the, they asked the question, when are you going to restore it? Now, seemingly, it looks like Jesus isn't answering them. He just says, well, it's not for you to know times and epics. But... Here's what you need to know. You will receive power. And when you receive power, what will you do? You will bear witness of me, prophet, priest, and king, the Messiah. Where will you bear witness of me? Throughout all the nations, to the end of the earth. And then he will return. When that mission is through. You see, I think he did answer their question. My covenant people are no longer found in one nation. I have bound the strong man. Now you go plunder his house. I am going to give you the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to bring my covenant people from every nation. Now listen, you're going to learn. I want you to go to the Jew first. Because the gospel got to you through them. But I'm not stopping there. And we're not going back to plan A. 
This is, and this isn't plan B. This is the promise to Abraham. In you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to take this gospel message to all the nations and lift me up because I, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So you're going to have power to do what? Take the gospel of the kingdom where? To all the nations and he will bring his people from every tribe and nation. And when you take that gospel, what do you take? You take the preeminence of Christ as creator, redeemer, and sustainer, and you lift him up. You will be my witnesses. So folks, right there, you and I have all kinds of theological issues solved for us. And one of those is this. What is the evidence of the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Here's what the evidence is. A powerful witness of Christ. That's the, that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence poured out from the throne among a people. A unstoppable, a unshameable, a eager, a relentless bearing and lifting up of Christ and the gospel of Christ throughout all the world. That's the testimony of a spirit-filled church. Now, do, does the Holy Spirit give gifts? Absolutely. Do we walk in the Spirit? Absolutely. Are we led by the Spirit? Absolutely. Is there the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness? Absolutely. But all of those things are subservient to why Jesus sends the Spirit. He sends the Spirit to His people to give us, watch, spiritual power, not carnal. We don't raise an army. Yes, I think they were wrong in the Crusades. I understand what they were doing, but I don't think that's our armament. We have the armor of Christ. We have the weapons of the Spirit to take captive the souls of men. That's what we're called to do. And this army of the Lord, this church of Jesus Christ, has Christ's armor, Christ's sword, Christ's word, Christ's righteousness, the faith, the gift of faith, and we have not only the armament of the Lord, we have the armorer, <laughs> trying to get the pronunciations right, and the Holy Spirit arms us. So we bear the sword of the Spirit into this world. I think He is answering. I'll tell you where the kingdom is. It's, it's not just one nation, it's international. It's not in one geographical location. It's spiritual. It's throughout all the earth. It's not just one people. It is making a people who were not a people and they're becoming the people of God. I think he is answering their question. And he is reaffirming what he said in Galilee. Go make disciples, what? Of all the nations. He is reaffirming it. That is biblical Christianity, an unstoppable, gospel-empowered, Holy Spirit-saturated, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting movement of the gospel from our Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost part of the world. That is biblical Christianity. That is what the church is here to do. I'm writing an article for Ligonier right now, and it's basically on uh, spheres and sovereignty of spheres.
And it's starting off like this, but please get the ligonier and read it. Don't, not, this isn't for you not to read it. It's kind of like when I try a sermon out on you, still hear it when I do the real thing. So um, here's, here's how I'm going to start. One of the first things I was taught in driver's ed was what? Stay in your lane. The church has a lane. We're going to stay in our lane. We're not the government. The church has a lane. We're not your family. Now, we are a family for your family. And we are a family for those who don't have a family. But we're not family. See, God has created. We have sinned. And God redeems. What, when God created, what was the institution of creation? The family. When we fell into sin, what institution did God bring to keep us from being as sinful whether we're saved or not? What was an instrument of common grace God provided to restrain sin? The government. Then God gives the work of redemption. What is the institution of redemption? It's the church. We are not the family. We are not the state. We are the church. And now listen to me. Don't, I know some of you are right now saying, oh, Harry's uh, anti me getting involved in politics. Oh, no, 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 no. It's just you don't get it. I don't, I mean, you may be in the Republican Party or Constitution or whatever party you're in, but you don't go into that party with that party being your guide. You are a Christian citizen. You engage in the sphere of politics as a Christian. You engage in your family as a Christian. Christian husband, Christian wife, Christian father, Christian mother, Christian grandparent. Praise the Lord. Christian grandparenting. You, you are, in other words, you live life with a Christian mind, Christian heart, Christ-driven love into every sphere of society. And who is it that God has ordained to equip you to do that? His church. So we have to stay on mission. Then we will turn out. I can start naming them. A Dan Roberts, a Gary Palmer. You go over there. Uh, the person that I had the privilege to work with last week in a, in a political party prayer breakfast. And they're doing there. But we are discipling. And that's what happens. People go into. They learn how to do marriage. They learn how to do family. They learn how to be a neighbor. They learn how to do all of those things in Christ and for Christ. Because we have a narrow mission with a comprehensive message. Our comprehensive message is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and lo I will be with you Holy Spirit empowered church uh, Bible saturated learning the whole counsel of God do you remember Paul said to the church at Ephesus after being there three years he said I'm innocent of your blood why well let me let me give you my answer I was on mission, on message, and in ministry. Let me give you his answer. Here's what he says. I was with you three years with tropical eyes. I was weeping. I was weeping over you. I was with you house to house, small group discipleship. I was with you in the gathering of God's people, the worship services. I was with you and taught you the whole counsel of God. The Word of God, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient, 
That's what I came to do. I didn't come to give you the latest philosophical treatise of, of, of Euripides. I didn't come to give you the latest writings on Josephus. I know all that stuff. I can quote them. But I came preaching one message, Christ and Him crucified. I brought the gospel, which is the foundation, the formation, the motivation of the Christian life. And with the gospel, that's the center, the circumference, and the substance of the whole counsel of God. And then I brought all that to you so that out of this church at Ephesus, we could send men and women who, whether they eat or drink or whatsoever they do, they now know how to do it to the glory of God. And I have now done this work with these elders with you. I have done all of that with you. Why? Because Jesus said if the church does its job, its people will become what? Salt of the earth. The light of the world. You see what he's saying? The Christian has a broad mission. To love mercy. To do justice, not the Frankfurt social justice. Do biblical justice. It's called the sanctities of God's law. How do you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind? How do you love your neighbor as yourself? And do what else? Walk humbly with God. That's what we're supposed to do as a church. We need to stay in our lane to put the people that need to be in the other lanes when we produce them by God's grace with the means of grace. And then I'm about to give a benediction and we who have gathered in large groups and small groups for discipleship are now going to scatter being evangelized and discipled with the whole counsel of God to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, I don't want to get waxing philosophically on this, but when we turned worship services into church growth enterprises instead of worship services that lift up Christ doing both equipping and evangelism, when we did that, the church just went five miles wide, one inch deep. So we don't, we're not salty because the church is not doing its job of making disciples. Now, yeah, this, we're going to have a part two. Okay, we're going to have a part two. So, so I want, now, Pastor, why is this important? Now, why, this is important because Satan attacks, Satan attacks the church. Do you, Satan attacks the church, and when he attacks the church, he loves to attack the church from the outside in and from the inside out. For those of you a little older here, uh, the two-front war of World War II, the two-front war of a civil war, the two-front war of the American Revolution is a constant tactic and a strategy, and Satan has it all the time. He has, he has that strategy constantly. Therefore, we have to respond to it. We are in a situation where we have this thing called progressive Christianity. And I believe it is the same battle with some slight differences that the church had to fight 
in the 19th century at the turn of the century to the 20th century. It was called then liberal Christianity. And what did liberal Christianity say? Liberal Christianity did not start out to destroy Christianity. On the contrary, its selling point is we're going to save Christianity. We're going to, we're going to save Christianity. Here is the modern mind in the 19th century. Scientific thought, the industrial age, the rising and even the beginning of information and communication and mobilization. And listen, the church has a great opportunity at the turn of the century. But first, we have to rescue the church from cultural irrelevance. The church is going to be consigned to the dustbin of history. If you don't make the modifications, and they're not talking about do you go from a mimeograph to a printing. They're talking about the mission and the message of the church. If you don't modify it, if you don't make changes, you're going to lose your children. If you don't make changes, you're going to be on the dustbin of history. Therefore, its motivation was to save the church from cultural irrelevance. Its mission was cultural transformation. In fact, mainline Protestantism even started writing a magazine called The Christian Century. This is it. This is going to be our century. Our mission is cultural transformation. And then, before long, the message began to change. Why did the message change? Because mission always controls message. Whatever your functional mission becomes, eventually your message will be conformed to it. In the 1980s, the church decided our mission is church growth, numbers, nickels, and noise. That's our mission. So what happened? We lost the gospel. We got a pragmatic gospel. We got an entertainment gospel. We got a gospel, pardon my language. It's not too much over the top, but I just want to get the point across. We preached a gospel that would put the meat in the seat on Sunday. Not souls converted to get to heaven. It was numbers, nickels, and noise, a pragmatic gospel. Then came the, the era of psychology. And what people really need is they just need to more information and a better view of themselves. They just need some self-esteem help. And then we lost the gospel. Out of that comes the therapy gospel. Well, then, you know, we've just got to, people need to be successful. And y'all are probably realizing if you'll just turn on TBN, you're seeing all these programs over the last 50 years. I'm just drawing from what's out there. 
You need self, you need self-esteem. You get a therapy gospel. I'll tell you what you need. I'm, let me quote one of the titles, one of the biggest programs in the 1980s. Success in your life. Or may I use it now? Your best life now. Well, that book is right. If you go by that book, your best life is now. The one you got coming is not going to be too good. This, so what did we get? We get a prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus and you get healthy, wealthy, and wise. You can name it and claim it, confess it and possess it, believe it and receive it. And what else happens? Well, you need us. We need we need social justice. Again, I'm all for justice. My Bible tells me to disciple you. It's called biblical justice. I'm not for social justice. Social justice is totally redefined, anti-Christian, and self-centered, and has no solutions. But because we said our goal is social justice, then we get an adulterated message of the social gospel. That's what continually happens. So here's what happens. If your mission is cultural transformation, then eventually your message will be determined, not by the Bible, but by cultural accommodation. And in liberal Christianity, that's exactly what happened. Well, we got to get rid of the virgin birth. We got to get rid of. We got to get rid of. Uh, we've got to get rid of um, the resurrection of the body. We got to get rid of the atonement of her sins. We got to get rid of all of that. We got to get rid of all of that. The modern mind just isn't going to accept this supernatural miracle stuff and all this redemptive stuff and all of that. They're just not going to accept it. So let's. And so then you get a theological movement. Now watch. Christian liberalism, which is going to make us culturally relevant to transform the culture, then becomes defined by the culture because the culture won't give us a seat at the table if we hold on to these essentials or as they were called then, the fundamentals of the faith, if we hold on to them. So today, and I'm going to end here, folks. I'm over. I'm sorry, but let me, let me just end here. I, I, I'll end here because I, I, I can't just stop here. I know I should stop here, but I can't stop here. Let me just say this briefly. So when I saw that progressive Christianity was the same as liberal Christianity, therefore, just like liberal Christianity had the wrong motivation, the wrong mission, and therefore ended up with the wrong message, it was called theological liberalism. I knew that's exactly what is going to happen here. Progressive Christianity is the same as liberal Christianity. Everything I just said, does that sound familiar to you? If the church doesn't modify, you're going to lose your children. I don't think it's because we, we've preached the gospel we're losing our children. I think it's because we're not preaching the gospel we lose our children. But you're going to lose your children. We want to save the church from the 20th to the 21st century from cultural irrelevance. Because our culture needs transforming. Seek the good of the city. Well, Harry, don't you believe in city? Isn't it Jeremiah 29? Seek the welfare of the city? Absolutely. But the city doesn't determine its welfare. God tells us to seek the lost and disciple them. That brings welfare to the city. 
That's why Acts 8 says, Philip went to the city of Samaria, preached Jesus, and the whole city rejoiced and was glad. But what does progressive Christianity say? Cultural, we, we want to save the church from cultural irrelevance. And we, our mission is cultural transformation. Then I'm telling you there's going to be cultural accommodation. But here's where I get the pushback. As soon as I recommended Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, as soon as I recommended, I got poured on. Harry, where in the evangelical church are we denying the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth? We're, we're not doing that. You know what I said to them? Here's what I said. Yes, we are not yet denying the virgin birth, the inerrancy of Scripture. We are not yet doing that, but the only reason we haven't done it yet is the culture hasn't demanded for us to do it yet. Right now, they're demanding that we change our mission. You become a philanthropic social institution or we will have no place for you. And so we are changing our mission, which will end up changing our message. When the culture gets around to telling us these things have to change, which they already have, you better get rid of your sexual ethics. You better get rid of your view of marriage. And if you don't condemn it and celebrate what we're saying, we'll shut you down. So why is this happening? There are five reasons this is happening. And I'm not going to try to get that to you tonight. That'll be next week. There's five reasons that progressive Christianity, which is liberal Christianity 2.0. Motivation. There's a reason I don't believe it's biblical Christianity. Not because it's got to the message totally yet, but simply this. It will get to the because mission controls the message. And the reason why. I believe it is anti-Christian as this. This church, Briarwood, it does not belong to the PCA. Nor does it belong to you. And I can tell you, Frank and I have talked about this. The thing that brings the biggest pain to us is when somebody says, do you go to Harry's church? you go to Frank's church? This isn't our church. When I came here, they asked me, Pastor, do you want to change the mission statement? I, Why should I? Mission statements don't change with pastors. Gift mix may change, but mission statements, the mission isn't determined by the pastor. The mission is determined by Jesus. Go make disciples. Go make disciples. And here's your message. 66 books wrapped in the contours of the gospel of grace. And take it to your Jerusalem and to all the world. Well, pastor, didn't it say when Paul got to Europe less than 25 years after the ascension of Jesus, didn't it say, didn't it say, uh, adversary said, these people have turned the world. Sounds like cultural transformation to me, pastor reader. No, doesn't to me. Here's why. If you'll go check Paul's three missionary journeys, his mission nor his message was to change the world. He did not have a mission of cultural transformation. That was a consequence. He had a mission of sinner transformation. And when sinners get saved, marriages, 
families, neighborhoods, and cities get changed. But that's not the mission. That's the consequence. The mission, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, teach them of Jesus who is mighty to save. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together. Thank you for the opportunity to begin this process of trying to understand what's going on in our present age. And Father, please, I don't know. I know you can do it, Lord. I know I can't do it. But would you please help these people, my dear, dear friends and fellows and flock, and uh, just love them so much. Please help them kind of hang on to this until next week. And we'll give you the praise as we attempt to be equipped, not only for the age to come, but this present age, so that we are not captivated by the spirit of the age but by the word of God and the spirit of God. For Jesus' sake, amen. Would you please stand? Oh, there you are. Okay. Yeah, go. I'm ready. Yeah. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. forgot to tell you, uh, see Debbie, I still recommend to you Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, until progressive, uh, until biblical Christianity and progressive Christianity comes out. Don't know who will write it, when it will come out. But until that comes out, may I recommend and get the Legacy Edition, which has chapters from the Westminster faculty with each chapter that is extremely helpful. So may I recommend that to you. Uh, and thank you for your patience tonight. I just had a lot to try to get us started. May God's grace, mercy, and peace be with all of you. And Jesus, thank you for your promise. I will build my church. And the gate of hell will not prevail against it. Praise your name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.